Well, we are finally there. We're on our final Sunday in our series on what's in a name. And as Lorna said, we're going to talk about Jesus being our chief cornerstone. But before we get there, we're also going to talk a little bit about God being the God of the covenant. Because when you put all those things together, you'll see the picture that it paints. And it's really kind of exciting. As we get started, I want to tell you about Harriet Tubman. For those of you who don't know, she was born a slave in Dorchester County, Maryland. Tubman was beaten and whipped by her various masters as a child. Early in her life, she suffered a traumatic head wound when one of her irate slave owners threw a heavy metal weight intending to hit another slave, and it hit her in the head instead. The injury caused dizziness, pain, spells of hypersomnia, which occurred throughout her life. But from what I know about Harriet Tubman, that's probably not what she would want you to remember about her life. In 1849, she escaped to Philadelphia, but then she immediately returned to Maryland to, re- to rescue her family and, and slowly rescue her friends. One group at a time, she brought her relatives with her out of the state and eventually guided dozens and hundreds of other slaves to freedom. But I don't think that's what she would want you to remember about her life. We know, as she was part of the Underground Railroad, as they called it, they traveled by night. They traveled in extreme secrecy. Tubman, or Moses, as she was called, never lost a passenger. But I don't think that's what she would want you to remember about her life either. Actually, after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was passed, she helped guide fugitives farther north into what was known as British North America and helped newly freed slaves find work. When the Civil War began, you may not know this, but Tubman worked for the Union Army, first as a cook, and then a nurse, and then as an armed scout and spy. The first woman to lead an armed expedition in the war. And as exciting as as that sounds, I don't think this is the only thing she would want to be remembered for. You may or may not know that Harriet Tubman guided the raid at Combahee Ferry, which liberated more than 700 slaves. After the war, she retired to the family home on property she had purchased in 1859 in Auburn, New York, where she cared for her aging parents. She was an active person in the women's suffrage movement until illness overtook her, and she had to be admitted to a home for elderly African Americans that she had helped to establish years later. After she died in 1913, she became an icon of American courage and freedom. Harriet Tubman was indeed a remarkable woman, there's no doubt about the amazing things that she did. But I think that she would like you to remember her for something else. Her legacy, if you will. You see, everything that I read about Harriet Tubman went back to this simple truth. She was a devout Christian. I think that is what Harriet Tubman would want us to remember about her. That above all, she knew Jesus. She knew the God of the covenant. She knew the promises of God. She knew the chief cornerstone of her faith. She built her life on the foundation uh, that Jesus was the chief cornerstone. And that is why she was able to do some of the amazing things I just told you about. She's compared to Moses by many, even called Grandma Moses. I, I think it makes sense when you look at similarities in their lives. Both Harriet Tubman and Moses were born slaves. Both escaped slavery, albeit in different ways. And both went back to the origin of their slavery to lead their friends and family out of slavery. 
Harriet Tubman was able to be, to be a source of sureness and strength for others because she depended on the God of the covenant and she held to the strength that came from Jesus, the true cornerstone. That's what she depended on for her strength, for her sureness. And today, as we look at what's in a name, we're going to look at what the, what the God of the covenant means. And we're going to dig into the meaning of Jesus as our chief cornerstone. If we do this well, I think we'll be able to use this knowledge to shore up the foundation that we should be living our lives on as well. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can know of people who had courage and and strength beyond their means, such as Harriet Tubman. I thank you more than that, that through your word, we can know your covenants. We can know the promises you make. Through your word, we can see that you are a keeper of your covenants. I also thank you that through your word, we're able to know intimately Jesus, your son. I pray today, Lord, as we look at Christ being our chief cornerstone, that we will, we will make that evident in our life, that that is where we stand. In your son's name we pray. Amen. First off, I want to start out with an understanding of God of the covenant. And, and just so you know, there are a lot of scriptures that go with this. And so you need to go ahead and get your pens out. If you want to write down some references, they're going to be coming up as we go through this. Uh, or if you want to make some tweetable moments, they're coming. Uh, and, and so just stay with me. But there's a lot of scripture that I'm going to share with you this morning. We'll start out in form. A covenant is an agreement between two people, most simply put. And it involves promises on the part of both persons to the other. You see, the concept of a covenant between God and His people is one of the central themes of the Bible. In a biblical sense, a covenant implies much more than a contract or a simple agreement between two parties. The word for covenant in the Old Testament provides additional insight into the meaning of the data or this idea. It comes from the Hebrew root word that means to cut. This explains the strange custom of two people passing through the cut bodies of slain animals after making an agreement. Now you're thinking, ooh, I don't know if I want to get involved in a covenant. That's kind of gross. But you can read about that in Jeremiah 34, verse 18. There's a ceremony similar to this is always accompanied with the making of a covenant in the Old Testament. Sometimes those entering into a covenant shared a meal, such as when Laban and Jacob made their covenant in Genesis 31, verse 54. Abraham, Father Abraham, remember him? Father Abraham. We're not going to sing that even though it's Family Sunday, we could. But Abraham uh, and his children were commanded to be circumcised as a sign of covenant between them and God. That's in Genesis 17, verses 10 through 11. At Mount Sinai, Moses sprinkled the blood of animals on the altar and upon the people who entered into the covenant with God. Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. You see, the Old Testament contains many examples of covenants between people who related to each other as equals. For example, David and Jonathan entered into a covenant because of their love for for one another. And this agreement bound them to certain responsibilities in 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. But the remarkable thing is that God is holy. He is omniscient. He's omnipotent. And He consents to enter into a covenant with man. He consents to enter a covenant with, with People like us, we're feeble, we're flawed, we're sinful. But God made a covenant with Noah, assuring Noah that he would never again destroy the world by flood in Genesis chapter 9. 
In making a covenant with Abraham, God promised to bless his descendants, to make them his own special people. In return, Abraham was to remain faithful to God and to serve as a channel through which God's blessings could flow to the rest of the world. That's Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Or excuse me, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Three months after leaving the land of Egypt, the children of Israel camped out at the base of Mount Sinai. This is Exodus 19. God promised to make a covenant with the Israelites in Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. And before they even knew the conditions of the contract, the Israelite people agreed to abide by whatever God said. God said, we're, we're going to make a covenant. They said, go on. We agree. They didn't even know the details of it, but they said they were all in. This covenant was between God and the people of Israel. We're not party to this covenant, this contract. The Ten Commandments are a foundation of that covenant, but they're not the entirety of it. There's a lot more in there. Another covenant was between God and King David, in which David and his descendants were established as the royal heirs to the throne of the nation of Israel in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. This agreement reached its fulfillment when Jesus, who is a descendant of the line of David, was born into Bethlehem. See, the New Testament makes a clear distinction between the covenants of the Mosaic Law and the covenant of the promise of Christ. The Apostle Apostle Paul spoke on these two covenants, one originating from Mount Sinai, the other from Jerusalem above. That's in Galatians 4, 24 through 26. Paul also argued that the covenant established at Mount Sinai was a ministry of death and condemnation, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 9. You see, the death of Christ ushered in the new covenant under which we are justified by God's grace and mercy. And it's now possible to have the true forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself is the mediator of this better covenant between God and man. Hebrews 9.15 Jesus' sacrificial death served as the oath or pledge which God made to us to seal the new covenant. You see, the new covenant is the new agreement God made with mankind based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's something we should be excited about. The concept of a new covenant originated with the promise of Jeremiah that God would accomplish for his people what the old covenant was not designed to do. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and in Hebrews 11, 7 through 13, under this new covenant, God would write his law on human hearts. One thing can be sure of is that God is not only the God of the covenant, but he honors his covenant. God never swayed from the covenants that he agreed to man with. Now, when you look in... The Bible, you'll see that man sometimes swayed from those covenants, but God did not. He is a keeper of his covenants. He will always honor his covenant. And that brings us to the place where we're now going to look at the foundation of this new covenant, which is Jesus. In both the Old and New Testaments, God figuratively refers to Jesus Christ as a stone. However, before we dive into some of what God has pictured for us, it helps if we think of stones in the proper way. Now, when you think of a stone today, we don't have the same awe and respect for large stones that the ancients did. What do we do if we see a large stone today? We jump on it, okay? <laughs> I was thinking blow it up, but that works too. We blow it up. We, we run a road through that mountain. We bulldoze it over. We, we don't have an appreciation for a boulder in the road like they would back in the ancient days. You see, back then, large stones could only be placed and in, in, in set in place by armies of men under the orders of kings. It took hundreds and hundreds of men to place a large stone, to move a large stone. 
when God refers to his son with various stone analogies, I think it's important that we take the time to reflect on what God is saying and what that means to our lives. Because just as a real stone can be viewed from different angles, so can the rock Jesus Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, 4, there's another reference about Jesus being this, this cornerstone. Now, in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the Messiah was born, the Psalms contained an accurate prophecy that although he would be rejected by the builders, he would become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24 say this, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, in the ancient world, the cornerstone was the most important stone in the whole building. It, it set the level, it set the, the angle, it set the outer dimensions for a building. It had to be level, it had to be square, it had to be true, vertical, it, it had to be set in just the right way so that all the other stones would be set on it. If it wasn't level, if it wasn't where it should be, then the walls of the building as they were put up would lean and fall. You see, we're used to thinking of Jesus as the cornerstone of the church. However, Psalm 118 referred to the Messiah as the cornerstone, but, but of what? Israel was never referred to as a temple or other building, and there were no prophecies of the Christian church being a temple. The ancients understood that calling the Messiah a cornerstone was metaphorical, and that by the decree of God Almighty, the Messiah was to be the very foundation and cornerstone of God's new creation, of this new covenant that was coming. You see, the creation we live in now is ruined by sin. We find ourselves oftentimes in bondage to decay and, and in great pain. Not unlike the pain of childbirth, some would say. Romans 8, 21 and 22. But thankfully, God will rebuild a new heaven and a new earth, according to Isaiah 65, 17. And he'll be using Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of this new creation. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the New Testament church. But there's some things you need to know about a cornerstone. First off, a cornerstone could not be a freshly cut untested stone that might fracture under the weight of what it supports the stone god laid as the foundation his only son it was precious to him it was tested over and over in the crucible of life even in his own life you can read about the the trials the temptations the things that jesus was tested with isaiah twenty-eight sixteen says therefore thus says the lord god behold i am laying in zion a stone a tested stone a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. God's cornerstone was the Messiah. God's cornerstone is still the Messiah. And although God had stated in many prophecies that the Messiah would come out of Judah, even from the line of David, he restated that again in Zechariah, making it crystal clear that the cornerstone was not an institution. The cornerstone was not the church. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. It's not just some great ruler, but the cornerstone is the chosen Messiah himself. Zechariah 10.4 says, From them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, from them every ruler, all of them together. Jesus knew he was the promised Messiah. He demonstrated that in many ways. Luke shares with us in, in his gospel, chapter 20, that once when Jesus was in the temple teaching and being confronted by religious leaders, Jesus quoted Psalm 118 about the stone that the, the, uh, that the builders rejected. I just shared that with you. Becoming the head of the corner. However, he added something. 
And I think this should catch our attention. Look at this. Luke 20, verse 18 says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, I get that we can maybe trip over a cornerstone. We, we can fall over the cornerstone. But how does the cornerstone fall on us? What, what's Luke getting at here? I don't understand that. He says, but on whom it falls, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. It's, it's clear we can, we can fall on a cornerstone. Here's something we need to think about. All right. And it's something that's, that's kind of buried in the biblical text. The same word that's used for cornerstone is also the same word that is sometimes used for capstone. So your, your cornerstone is the first stone that's laid when you're putting in a building. And your capstone is the final stone. And it's often very decorative, but it, it's also it's placed at the top of the building. It's what completes it. In fact, most translations read cornerstone. The NIV actually says capstone in reference to this other part Matthew 21 42 Mark 12 10 and Luke 20 verse 17 the NIV translates that as capstone and scholars have debated for years as to whether cornerstone or capstone is the proper translation but there are some good reasons why I think the cornerstone should be the preferred translation in our English versions nature uh, sometimes we're forced to make decisions between two words and it's hard to put it all together, but it's wise to see the possibilities. Maybe even make a note in your Bible that uh, capstone and cornerstone. After all, Jesus is called the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In Matthew twenty-one forty-two, Mark twelve ten, in these various scriptures. But here's the thing: what happens if you remove the capstone? The whole building crumbles. So again, when you look at that scripture, yeah, you can fall, and sometimes we do. We stumble over Christ. But when we remove him from our life, everything else around us will crumble too. You see, if Jesus is the first and the beginning stone, then that means he's the cornerstone. And if he is the last and the end stone, he's also the capstone. In truth, Jesus is both the very foundation of God's covenant in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. See, He was there from the very beginning. So He's both the foundation of God's covenant, and He's also the highly visible and beautiful capstone that will finish His creation. Think on that as we hear these words. When I'm hiding behind my disguises, you see me. It takes you to keep me breathing. You are heart, passion, vision. You send me and bring me close, close, close. So close that when you see me, you see you. You are heavenly. You are my present and my future destiny. You are Father, Creator, Sustainer, Life Changer, Pride Breaker. You are the same yesterday, now and forever. You are pleasure, 
worth, reason, present in every season. You are worship, devotion, the reason for all my commotion. You are the one that I pray to. You can tell that I'm nothing without you. So awesome that I can pray to you about you, to know you, to sense you, to believe you more. To love you more, to obey you more, to give you more of my heart. Oh God, search me, know me, see me, examine me, test me, watch me. Investigate me, question me, be pleased with me, have me, change me. Sustain me, decrease me, decrease me, decrease me until there is no me left, only you, only you. Only you are light, our true, our you, our hope, our joy, our strength, our escape. Rescue, safe. You are peace, you are relief, you are advance and retreat. Of what, to what, to whom can I compare you? You are my all things new, you are my place of refuge. My fortress, my rest, my creativity and the strength of the words you speak to me. You are my ability to see, to hear, to feel, to move, to live, to breathe, to be. You are life and death all at the same time. You are friend, believer, savior, redeemer. You are the truth. You transcended old and youth. You are timeless, priceless, lightness in darkness. Greatness, goodness, sinless, and in a mess like my life. You see righteousness. In fact, you leave me speechless, for you alone are God. God, you are indeed all those things and more. I thank you for... Your examples, I thank you for your word. I pray that we'll take time to apply these things to our lives. Amen. So in answering the question, what's in a name? When you worship the God of the covenant, there's a lot in a name. When you build your life on the foundation and the fact that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone to which you level everything in your life around and on and through. It's more than just a catchy series. Oh, what's in a name? There's salvation in this name. At the beginning of my message, I was comparing Harriet Tubman with Moses, and something that caught my attention about her was how, or about Moses, how after he had led the Israelites out of slavery, and they were traveling to the promised land, one of the things the Israelites did is, is they forgot that they had once been slaves for Pharaoh. It seemed like the closer they got to the promised land, that they at least forgot how bad slavery was. They they would even complain that at least in Egypt we had food. Listen to this. Harriet Tubman is reported to have saved the lives of over 500 slaves just by herself. 
by leading them to their freedom. And, and she's quoted as saying, I could have saved more if I could have convinced them that they were slaves. Same thing for Moses. It, it seems like he would, he would continually have to remind the Israelites that they were once slaves. Oh, back in Egypt we had food. You were beaten. Oh, back in Egypt we had a place to live. We didn't have to pack up all the time. You were making bricks with mud and no straw. They would forget these things. How about you? When it comes to the sin in our lives, sometimes we're the same as those slaves that Harriet Tubman was referring to. The sad reality is that even as Christians, we don't often see the true need for Jesus as our chief cornerstone in our lives. We don't see a real need for honoring our God of the covenant or our part of the covenant that God has made with us. We don't want to admit that we're slaves to sin. We would rather remember the the food pots that we were allowed to eat from once a day while we made bricks for Pharaoh. We'd rather live a lukewarm, walking-the-fence existence of, I look good on the outside, so I must be just fine. We'd rather do that than submit to the God of the covenant than to chisel away at the things in our lives that need to change in order to be part of the foundation of the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. You see, Satan, I believe, I believe that Satan has convinced us that mediocrity is what we need. It's, it's mediocrity that will keep us lukewarm. It's mediocrity that will keep us from being transparent with one another. It's mediocrity that convinces us it's acceptable to live with secret sin in our lives. After all, I, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be better than the next guy. You know the difference between Christians held captive by sin and the slaves that Harriet Tubman freed? And all the research I did about the the folks that she led through freedom or to freedom, I couldn't find one story or document that talked about one of those slaves going back to their former life of slavery and abuse by their masters of darkness. Maybe I just didn't find it. Maybe I didn't look hard enough. But why is it that as Christians, we so often taste the freedom from sin. We admit that we're slaves to sin. We confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. We accept Him as our Deliverer, our Lord and Savior. We, we publicly proclaim that we will build our new life centered on Him as our chief cornerstone. And then something happens, and instead of reaching for our cornerstone, instead of bracing ourselves against the Lord of the covenant, we reach back to the comfort of what it was we left in the world. We, we slip back to that lukewarm water of slavery to our sin and we look around while we're doing it and we justify our actions by saying, it's, I'm still better off than so-and-so. They're really messed up. Brothers and sisters, it's time to admit, actually it's time to confess whatever it is that you're a slave to. It's time to quit going back. It's time to move forward with the God of the covenant. It's time to secure yourself to the chief cornerstone and not look back with a reluctance of what you think you left behind, but look forward to where God is taking you. It's time to allow the God of the covenant and the chief cornerstone to be the architects of our life. Whatever that looks like for you this morning, will you stand and sing our response song and respond accordingly to God's word?